the nature, government, and function of the church, a reassessment. 2001, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England. Narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. 5. Conclusion The primary emphasis of the New Testament is on the kingdom of God, not the institutional church. Indeed, the Gospels hardly speak directly and specifically of the institutional church at all, and with the exception of Matthew 18, 15-20, Jesus, in his ministry on earth, did not give detailed teaching on this aspect of the Christian life, leaving it instead to the apostles to work out later. And even the apostles, at least in Scripture, did not go into any great detail, giving only general principles, and thus much freedom for the church to build upon. In contrast to the heavy emphasis on the institutional church that is common today among Christians, Jesus' emphasis was on the kingdom of God, on the church visible in the broadest sense, and on the church invisible, for example, in the parables and the extended teaching given in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 to 17, especially the discourse on the promise of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 following, the true vine, 15, 1 to 11, and the high priestly prayer, chapter 17, in which he makes it clear that his intercession is only for God's elect, that is, the invisible Catholic Church. Since Judas Iscariot was still a member of the Church, visible at that point, the institutional Church simply was not the focus of Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry, nor is it the primary focus of the Bible generally. Of course, some would argue that in the parables of the Kingdom, Jesus speaks of the visible institutional church. But these are not parables about the church. They are parables about the kingdom of God, and they cannot be consistently interpreted as parables about the church. For example, in the parable of the tares and wheat, the field represents the world, not the church. It is not at all clear, therefore, that the parable is to be applied to the concept of the visible institutional church. To assume that the mixed society of believers and non-believers, represented by the field of tares and wheat, is the visible institutional church, is to acquit the church with the world. But even granted, for the sake of argument, that Jesus does here speak of the church visible, his teaching must refer to the church visible in a much wider sense than merely the institutional church, since his subject is the kingdom of God, and this has a much wider reference than the Christian public religious cultus. The institutional church is only one aspect of the life of the church visible, not the whole of it. The role of the church as an institution is ancillary to what was the primary focus of Jesus' teaching, the kingdom of God, in the widest sense. His emphasis was on the kingdom 
and thus on the life of faith and obedience to God's word, by which the kingdom of God is maintained in history. The Bible teaches that man's life is meant to be Christ-centred in all things, not church-centred. Jesus Christ, God's word made flesh, is our logos, that which gives meaning and purpose and outward form to the life of man, both individually, personally, and in all his relations with the outside world, society. Christ must be at the centre of life. It is idolatry to make anything or anyone else, including the church, one's logos. Christ alone is to reign in man's heart. But I have argued in this paper that the institutional church, that aspect of the church's life and calling, whose function is the maintenance and practice of the Christian public religious cultus, has come to dominate the life and actions of the body of Christ, and this has produced a doctrine of the church that is distorted and clergy-centred. As a consequence of the wider concern of bringing in the kingdom of God across the whole spectrum of man's personal, cultural and societal life has been neglected. Yet the Lord Christ commanded us to pray and work for this wider concern of the kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 This emphasis was Christ's emphasis. Significantly, in the prayer Christ taught his disciples to pray, there is no emphasis at all on the institutional church. It is not even mentioned. The Lord's Prayer is a kingdom and God-centred prayer, not a church-centred prayer, because that is the focus that is to characterise the Christian life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6.33 Christ said not seek first the institutional church and its forms of public worship. The kingdom of God cannot be reduced to the institutional church. It is much broader and all-encompassing. There can be no uncertainty about either the connection or difference between these two fundamental notions. The Basileia kingdom is the great divine work of salvation in its fulfilment and consummation in Christ. The Ecclesia is the people elected and called by God and sharing in the bliss of the Basileia. Logically, the Basileia ranks first and not the Ecclesia. It represents the all-embracing perspective it denotes the consummation of all history, brings both grace and judgment, has cosmic dimensions, fills time and eternity. So there is no question of Basilea and Ecclesia as being identical. In every respect, the church is surrounded and impelled by the revelation, the progress, the future of the kingdom of God, without, however, itself being the Basilea, and without ever being identified with it. Instead of seeking first the kingdom of God, however, the church, at least in this century, has spent most of its time contemplating its own navel. 
concern only with the institutional church, its outward form of liturgy, government, discipline, ministry, etc., the witness of the church in the world has been woefully lacking, and it has been weakened in its divine calling to bring all nations to Christ, a commission that is all-embracive of personal, cultural, and national life. The church has emasculated itself before the watching world, and now the churches wonder why they are so fruitless, so unable to speak with authority and power to the world they have abandoned. The situation created by this clergy-centred view of the church, the Christian ecclesia or community of God's people, has been helped by four centuries of misleading translation and by confused thinking about the body of Christ and its divine mission on earth, which might at least have been mitigated had those who translated the 1611 version of the Bible not imposed an essentially medieval doctrine of the church onto their translation. But they did, and this perhaps helps to explain why the church today is institution and clergy-centred rather than kingdom-centred. It is not the whole explanation, though. The institution and clergy-centred view of the faith also explains why such a misleading translation of Ecclesia has persisted. The medieval view of the church as an institution has both helped to create the error that led to the mistranslation and was in turn further ingrained in public sentiment by that translation. It is too late now to deal with this mistranslation. It is not too late to deal with the error it has helped to perpetrate. It has been the purpose of this essay to attempt to correct this error. It has dealt with the nature, government and function of the institutional church. It has been argued that the true nature of the church, the ecclesia of God's people, consists in its being the body of Christ, that it consists, to use the word of John Murray, of those sanctified in Christ Jesus, regenerate by his Spirit, and united in faith and confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. It has been argued further, however, that although this is the biblical definition, it does not account for all the biblical material bearing on the nature of the Church in its outward or visible manifestation in the world, since the criteria given us by Christ for accepting a person into the fellowship of the Church is not regeneration, but profession of faith and works. We have seen, therefore, that the distinction between the Church visible and invisible is necessary in order to maintain a doctrine of the Church that is faithful to the whole of biblical teaching on the subject. We have also seen that the Church in a particular geographical area should form itself into an institutional Church in order to maintain and practice the Christian public religious cultus instituted by God's Word. It has also been argued, however, that while this institutional Church is a God-ordained societal structure with important functions in the life of the individual, the body of believers as a community, and the nation, the biblical doctrine of the Church shows us that the ecclesia, the Church in its broadest sense, is 
much more than the institutional church. The former may never be reduced to the latter, therefore, without distorting the biblical emphasis. To adopt such a reductionist doctrine of the church would be to collapse the whole of the Christian's life and calling in all its varied spheres of activity into one dimension of the Christian faith. Furthermore, logically, it would be to confuse the relationship between the institutional church and other institutions such as the state and, we might add, the family, each of which is a distinct God-ordained institution with specific and limited functions under God's law. For example, the institutional church may not exercise the authority of the magistrate, yet the Bible maintains that the church, in the broader sense, as the body of Christ, the community of believers, does have such a duty and privilege. Psalm 149, 6-9 That is to say, the wider body of Christ has a political function within the legitimate jurisdiction of the magistrate, whereas the purpose and function of the institutional church is limited by God's word to the Christian public religious cultus. Equally, the family is a Christian institution, which the church, that is, the body of Christ in the broader sense, is responsible to maintain and govern according to God's word. But the institutional church may not assume the authority and functions of the family without going beyond its legitimate calling and authority under God's word. Thus, the whole of society in all its varied spheres of activity is to be Christian. But this does not imply an ecclesiastical state, that is, a state run by the institutional church. Society is to be Christ-centred, that is, centred on the kingdom of God, over which Christ rules as sovereign, not church-centred. But while the institutional church is limited in its function and authority, and may not encroach on the legitimate spheres of other God-ordained institutions, state and family, the church, the body of Christ in the broader sense, is to encompass all social institutions. The government of the institutional church has also been considered. I have attempted to deal with this issue without sectarian overtones, while arguing, nevertheless, that the Bible, in its doctrine and narrative examples, sets forth the basic principle that government of the church should be synodical, not prelatical, that is, that it should consist of elders acting jointly, not severally. I have argued also, however, that church government should be characterised as a ministerial function, not a magisterial function, while at the same time acknowledging a judicial element to the life of the church in the disciplining of apostates and unrepentant immoral persons. I have, nevertheless, criticised the divisive, sectarian and tyrannical use of the church's disciplinary function as unbiblical. The principal means of ruling the church is through the teaching of God's word, Acts 6, 2-4. The New Testament form of church government I have acknowledged to be elderships, but I have also stressed that there is a need for a balance to be maintained between hierarchy 
and decentralism, and that the Bible does not give us a model of church government in which power and authority flow down from the top echelons of the hierarchy to the individual churches, but in which power and authority flow from Christ as the head and sovereign of his church to the local congregation, and then upwards through the councils of elders elected by the congregations and the synods convened by local congregations to resolve extraordinary or difficult matters that cannot be settled at the church level. In this way, the biblical elements of both hierarchy and decentralism are maintained, while the unbiblical idolatry of these elements of church life, evident in many denominations, are recognised as deleterious to the life of the church and avoided. Nevertheless, my concern has been to promote, my concern has not been to promote a particular denomination, since none are free from error and without need of reformation and correction, according to Scripture. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, the Church, having been reformed, is always fit to be reformed. I have argued, furthermore, that the character of Church government is more important than the specific form of Church government, and the principles of Church government that I have tried to outline can, in the main, be adopted by all Christian denominations. In view of this, the question arises as to whether the accommodation of all Protestant parties in a single national church, if not a national denomination, cannot be formulated and embraced as an ideal to which the Christian church should work. This would not be the same animal as the ecumenical church proposed by modern liberalism, but a Protestant ecumenicity based on biblical principles of church government, rather than the highly rarefied and tenuous ecclesiologies maintained by most denominations. The fact is that most Christian churches are functionally Episcopal, at least at the local level, including most Presbyterian and Congregational churches, and at the regional and national levels also, to some extent, for example the superintendents of the Baptist Union in Britain, and, most except in theory, the synodical nature of church government on the regional and national levels, or at least the need for such synods on occasions, for example the national and deanery synods of the Church of England, and the regional and national associations of congregational and Baptist churches. A loose confederacy, at least, is surely practicable among churches that are doctrinally in substantial agreement. What is necessary to achieve this is the commitment and willingness to work towards a more biblical view of church government and a more biblical emphasis in the practice of church government. Experience suggests that the lack of such commitment today is generated either by idolatry of denominational ideologies or the lust for power by established church leaders and dignitaries who fear the perceived loss of kudos and esteem that the collapse of their own little ecclesial empires would bring. Finally, the function of the church has been considered. Here we saw that the function of the church is fivefold. One, to teach the word of God. Two, to administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Three, to engage in corporate public worship and prayer. Four, to care for those in need. 
the diaconal function, and 5. To maintain discipline in terms of doctrine and morals. All these functions, however, have as their primary purpose the equipping of the saints, the body of Christ, for the wider service in the world, that is, the cultural mandate and great commission. In the broadest sense, what I have called Christian Reconstruction. The purpose of the Christian ministry, the teaching and pastoral office in the institutional church, therefore, is to equip the church in the broader sense for action in the world according to God's word. The ministry of the church does not exist for itself nor to build up the church directly. Rather, it must equip the church, the saints, for service in the world and it is that service engaged in by the whole body of Christ in all areas and walks of life that builds up the church, including the institutional church. The building up of the church is thus the remote consequence, not the direct object or focus of the work of the Christian ministry. We have seen that the church's service in the world, its calling as Christ's body on earth, proclaiming and working to establish his kingdom, is to be outward-oriented, positive, comprehensive, involving all spheres of life and culture, both personally and nationally, and thoroughly biblical in orientation and practice. Yet, we have also seen that this biblical function of the church has been distorted and overturned by a clergy-centred, inward-looking perspective that puts the institutional church at the centre of the Christian life instead of the kingdom of God. The calling and function of the body of Christ on earth has thus been neglected. And, since it is that service in the world that builds up the church, not the activities of the church ministry directly, the church as an institution has declined also. Thus has begun a vicious circle in which the remedy proposed by misguided clergymen to revive the church, that is, more concentration on the institutional church to the exclusion of the wider calling of the body of Christ in the world, has actually led to further decline since it has set aside the calling and function of the church in the world, which is God's chosen instrument for accomplishing that end so eagerly desired by clergymen, viz. the building up of the church. The long-term result for the church, including the institutional church, has been a church that is almost totally detached from life in the real world, and thus irrelevant and culturally impotent. The church has ceased to function as God's mouthpiece to a fallen world and it fails to demonstrate the power of the gospel to a world in desperate need of the transformation that only the gospel can effect. But the irony of the situation has been lost on short-sighted clergymen who care only for building their ever-decreasing in size denominational empires. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 That is, in the practical demonstration of obedience to God's word in the communities and individual lives of God's people. In the words of the popular proverb, Don't tell me, show me. Yet, how can a church that concentrates all its time and efforts on an institutional church that is largely of the world, but not in the world, 
demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God in all its fullness to the watching world. The church would have to be in the world and seen as the church by the world for that to happen. Instead, the church has retreated from the world. But Christ did not spend all his time and efforts in the synagogue. The retreating church has hardly had an example to follow in Jesus. He went into the world and he commanded us to do likewise. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Mark 16.15 The task of teaching in the institutional church is a function of the ordained ministry. It is not the central activity or focus of the church's calling, and neither is any other activity that may take place in the church. The calling of the body of Christ on earth does not revolve around the institutional church. The calling of the body of Christ is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, in word and deed, to the whole creation. When this vicious circle is broken and the saints are equipped for service in the world as Christ's body on earth, we can expect a Christian renaissance in society. The growth of the institutional church will be the inevitable result since God has promised to bless a people and a nation that is obedient to his word. Instead of this, we have had the reduction of the church to the function of the ordained ministry. The consequence has been the decline of the institutional church, but also, and inevitably, the repaganization of the whole culture in education, science, politics, economics, music, art, medicine, family, morality, charity, and all other spheres, since the reduction of the church to the function of the ordained ministry has necessarily meant the withdrawal of the influence of the Christian faith from these spheres of social and cultural endeavour. Another inevitable consequence of this situation has been the re-emergence of the sacred-secular divide. Along with this, ecclesiastical empire-building has emerged as the goal of church evangelization programmes, with all the rancour that such stupidity generates. This is all the inevitable consequence of idolatry of the institutional church. In church life, as in personal life, the words of Christ are ever pertinent. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16.25 The institutional church has lost its soul. Nothing could be more evident than that fact today. But what is not readily understood is that it has lost its soul because it has sought only itself and its own aggrandizement, its own power and importance in the life of the believer and the Christian community, and indeed the world. Instead of seeking what Christ taught us to seek before all other things, the kingdom of God, it has sought primarily its own increase, and in so doing, has failed Christ by failing to fulfil its vitally important but limited role of equipping the saints for service and dominion in the world. God has not blessed this idolatry. Instead, he has judged the church for its apostasy and idolatry, since judgment must begin at the house of God.
And, if it is first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? 1 Peter 4.17 The only way for the church, the institutional church, to find its soul again, and its proper function in the kingdom of God, is to lose itself for Christ's sake, that is, stop seeking itself, and seek instead to fulfil its God-ordained but limited calling in all humility. Instead of institutional empire building, the kingdom of God must be the focus of the church's ministry and the all-consuming passion of its members. It must begin its biblical function of training and equipping the saints for the task of building the kingdom of God in all spheres of life. The institutional church is not the kingdom of God. It is merely one element of the kingdom, though a vitally important one, namely the training and equipping arm of the kingdom. It is there to prepare and fully equip the church for its task in the world. It exists to get the church into the world, not the world into the church. When it begins once more to fulfil this specific task to which it is called, and for which it is provided with the various ministries, the church, that is, the church in the broadest sense, the body of Christ, will be ready and able to start taking dominion over the earth in Christ's name once more, and the institutional church itself will begin again to grow as the kingdom of God is realised in the lives and relationships of men and nations as they bow the knee to Christ as Lord and Saviour. The church can then expect God's blessing, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Until then, it will be boredom, irrelevance and stupidity in the church mummy factory, as usual. May God give us all grace to lose our lives for his sake and seek the kingdom of God before all other things, for without God we can do nothing. John 15, 5 The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.